Thanks for listening to this audio sermon from the pulpit of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. You can learn more about us by visiting our website, www.covenant-pca.com. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Now we ask that you'd illumine our weak minds, our minds that are easily distracted. Keep us focused. Help us, Father, to grow in grace as your word is proclaimed, that we might leave this place more like our dear Savior. And We do pray this in his wonderful name. Amen. Well, in chapter 1, we have pretty much the introduction to the book of Acts. We've seen that. Chapters 2 through 7, we have the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus gave them. You remember back in chapter 1, Jesus says, uh, the the apostles have said, Lord, when will the kingdom of Israel be restored? And Jesus answers them. And he says, this is how it's going to be restored. It's going to be restored through the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Did you notice that Philip is preaching the gospel of the kingdom and of Jesus Christ? It's going to be be fulfilled through the preaching of the gospel. It's going to be fulfilled through the preaching of the gospel first to Jerusalem, he says, and then in all Judea and Samaria and, and to the end of the earth. And I told you then, as we're going to see unfolding in the book of Acts, we're going to see this from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And here we have, in this passage, the church moving forward from Jerusalem to Samaria and to Judea. And so we're, we're, chain, we're shifting. We're moving out of the immediate context of Jerusalem. We're moving into that region of Judea and Samaria. And of course, as we anticipate As we move into Acts, we'll move to the end of the earth by the time it's all over. It's a marvelous, marvelous unfolding of God's kingdom work. But it's not just the fact that we're moving geographically. We're also seeing something else happen. Calvin comments on it and he says this, They were scattered not only through divers places of Judea, but that they came even unto Samaria so that the middle wall began to be pulled down, which made division between the Jews and the Gentiles. For the conversion of Samaria was, as it were, the first fruits of the calling of the Gentiles. This is something Paul addresses in Ephesians chapter 2, 11 and following. and says, through the preaching of the gospel, we no longer have this, this middle wall dividing us. We start to see... Jews and Gentiles all coming into the church. There's not a Jewish church. There's not a Gentile church. There's not intended to be that. In fact, the book of Hebrews is all about that. There's to be one church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to include all those. Paul says in Galatians and three, chapter 3, as well as in Romans, that... You are descendants of Abraham if you are descendants by faith, not by flesh, not by ethnicity. And so we're seeing that start to happen, the Lord taking down those middle walls that separate. I want us to look at this lengthy passage 
this morning under three headings. And the first is this, is the persecution. Second is the proclamation. And, uh, and then we'll look at the perception of, of the gospel and how important it is. I hope you saw why I read Isaiah chapter 55. There we're told that the gift of God, every gift of God is a grace gift. You can't buy it. And here you see Simon betraying his real heart, even though he's, he's believed. And I'll remind you, James chapter 2 tells us that even the demons believe and tremble. And here Simon has this, this believing experience, but then betrays immediately the type of faith that he has by saying, hey, look, I want to buy into this power you guys have. In other words, he loved power. He'd enjoyed the power before of magic, and he had everybody's attention. They all said he was great. And now Philip comes along, and, and he's not getting all the attention. We'll come to that in a moment. First thing is that the persecution uh, is the catalyst in this context for the gospel obedience. It seems that, that the church, uh, remember, Jesus says you're, you're to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost ends of, the ends of the earth, and it seems that they may have become, as is often the case, comfortable. And they weren't moving. And God, as it, as it were, escalates the persecution so that they have good reason to leave Jerusalem. And so they do. They're scattered into the region all around them. And God has his purposes in this, and it's to, to claim the souls that he's chosen from eternity past for his vessels of mercy and grace. Let's not lose a point here. Notice that it says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now, what you get there is they were all scattered, obviously not every single individual. This is one of those good passages to go to and realize that every time the Bible says all, it doesn't mean all. All doesn't mean every single individual. In this case, there's a, there's a qualification twice in this passage for who the all include. They include a, a, a lot of people. And it may be, and I'm not, I'm not ready to be dogmatic on this, but it may be that the all include all those Gentile believers that are living in Jerusalem, all those Hellenistic Jews that we saw back in chapter 6 because Philip becomes the, the center figure of this movement out of Jerusalem, and he was one of those Hellenistic. That's a Hellenistic name. He was being moved out into this Greek-speaking Greek living world. But there was left behind the apostles and certain devout men we see burying Stephen and making great lamentation over him. So there were people who stayed behind in Jerusalem to do the work of the church. Whether it was taking care of the body of Stephen and burying him or was proclaiming the gospel, the church there remained intact. But many people move out, and certainly among them were these Hellenistic followers of Christ. There's no suggestion here, by the way, that 
one group's more special than the other. The ones who stayed back in Jerusalem, manning the fort as it were, keeping the church alive in Jerusalem, ministering to the needs of the people, the poor and needy, preaching the gospel. Uh, no indication that, that they're any more special than the ones who went out. We see this happen in church history. The third century, there's, a, there's an epic occasion where Cyprian of, of Carthage decides on the very, on the very front of some, some very hard persecutions that are taking place in and around Carthage, he decides that it would be wiser for him to ease out into the suburbs, so to speak, and remain safe from the persecution so that when the persecution cease, he can be there to minister to the needy people who are left behind from the ravages of the, of the Roman soldiers. could be that the apostles have this sort of pastoral care in mind when they stay behind. Notice Philip goes out. We see something different about Philip than we do about Stephen. Stephen, I told you, was talking. He was just, this was his normal customary conversation going about telling about Jesus. Now Philip is proclaiming. He's preaching. Different words different import. He is authority. He can speak with the authority of the church. Seems what happened here is that the apostles, uh, as we would say today, the apostles recognized his gifts as a preacher teacher and they sent him out. They ordained him and sent him to be this preacher on the frontier of Judea and Samaria. And so he can preach with this kind of authority and carry with it the, the apostolic authority. And so he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The tense there is, is one that this is, this, is, this is what he is going to be about doing. This is not a hit or miss thing. This is not a once, a one-time thing. This is what he is going to be regularly doing, proclaiming the gospel. And so the persecution becomes the catalyst for the church to go out into the world and for the world to receive the gospel, all the benefits. You notice in verse 8, there was much joy in that city from the preaching of the gospel, from the effects of the gospel upon people's lives. Now, the second thing I would see is that, the, the propagation of the gospel. And that we see in verses 4 through 8. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city. He singled out. He's the one that, that's particularly in focus here down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. I want you to notice he preached the primacy of the preaching. Chapter 9, or verse 9, we read about Simon and uh, how that when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, verse 12. Preaching is primary. We often talk, we talk a lot in the Reformed uh, tradition of the centrality of God's Word, that everything we do should be centered around God's Word. We determine what we will sing based upon God's Word. We determine how we'll pray based upon God's Word. We determine how we preach and what we preach upon God's Word. How to do the sacraments. Everything sent, the Word is central to everything. We also talk about the primacy of preaching. 
that in the corporate worship service, preaching is the primary thing. Why is that? Because the scriptures tell us that faith comes from hearing the preached word. That's the ordinary means by which people come to saving faith in Christ is through the reading and hearing and preaching of God's word. And so we make it the centerpiece and we make it primary in our worship services. And here, it's primary. Now listen, Philip certainly is exhibiting some of the gifts of this apostolic context. You notice that he's done some signs already. That just simply means that he's doing things that mark him out as a man with apostolic authority. And says in verse 13, Simon believed after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles, literally great power, he was amazed. Now remember, this is the man who amazed people. And now he's amazed. You're starting to understand that the magic that he performed was just that. It was magic. It was pretend. You ever been to, a, to a, 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 some place where a magician's doing something and you just can't quite figure out, how did he do that? Well, they have their tricks. It's magic. It still astonishes us because we can't do that. But here's one who had his tricks and he did his magic and when he sees the real power of God, he's amazed. And you notice everybody else kind of got it too. In comparison to what he'd been doing, when they hear Philip preach and they see the sign and power that he preaches with and the things he does, the demons coming out, they're amazed, and they forget about Simon. He's no longer on their radar. He's off the screen. But it begins with a preaching. Let us never lose sight of that. What did they pay attention to? They paid attention to him. They believed Philip as he preached the good news. We don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about people not believing us because we can't, we can't do a miracle or do a sign. Thomas Adams, the great old Puritan, got it so right. So what if God no longer strikes stones and makes water gush out of them? He strikes hard hearts and makes tears of repentance gush forth. Which is the greater miracle? The changing of a hard heart. And that's what God's in the business of doing now. Yes, he did those signs and those powerful works at times, various times. You can study the history in the Bible, and you see at various times he does this to bring about verification, confirmation of his word, what he is saying. But now, what's the power of God unto salvation? What's the power? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, those, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. What's the power of God 
a miracle? No. The word of the cross. Preaching the cross of Christ. Read on down. Jews, verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, human wisdom. But Paul sets the contrast. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What's the power of God? Now, remember, this is an apostle Paul saying this, a man who had done these powerful deeds, these miracles. And now he's saying to the church at Corinth, people who are enamored with trickery, enamored with all sorts of human wisdom and devices, he's saying, it's, it's, it's in effect he's saying, no signs or miracles for you people. You would only be attracted to those things. It's the word of the cross. It's the power of God and salvation for those who believe. It's the preaching of Christ crucified. That's what I'm going to preach to you. That's all I'm going to do for you. Because you need to put your faith in the right place, in Christ Jesus alone. What's the tendency? All through the period when we see the working of miracles, the tendency was for people to bow down and worship the apostles, wasn't it? Every occasion... That's the tendency. That's who we are as humans. We tend to worship whatever's closest, most, most close to our vision. And whoever's doing, doing the greatest thing. Then we dismiss them when they don't quite live up to it. Miracles were for a good purpose. The apostolic work to bring the New Testament canon of Scripture, Matthew through Revelation, to the church confirmed in the people's minds that, yes, this is thus saith the Lord. This is God's word. Let me just say this, because I will address this as we work through Acts, just out of necessity. Uh, am I saying that, that then God doesn't do miracles anymore? I'm not saying that. Now, most of what we call miracles are just providential works of God. We, we've kind of broadened the definition of miracle, and we need to be careful about that just for definition's sake. Most things that, that happen and people say, oh, that was a miracle. It was just a providence of God. I say just a providence. Still God actively working to guide, uphold, direct all things from the greatest to the least, right? So I'm not diminishing it at all. I'm just saying it's not God intervening in time and space and, and changing the rules. Here, God certainly can do that any time he wants. We simply have no apostles through which he will do that any longer. We've seen the definition of apostle. An apostle had to be someone who saw Jesus and, and walked with him. We've seen, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, that the apostles owned these signs and miracles. That was their theirs for them to hold. We don't have apostles any longer. We have been given the ordinary offices of elder and deacon, and guess what? God deemed that sufficient for the church to take care of our souls and our bodies as being singularly sufficient. And so the preaching of the gospel is the thing that we do first and foremost. That's the primary calling of the church. Jesus said, that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You go, therefore, 
and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all I commanded you, and I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the calling of the church. That's the mission of the church, the propagation of the gospel through the preaching of the gospel. You've seen the contrast. Please don't lose that as you leave here today. Go and read. Here's a man who did the magic and yet, and had great attention, was declared to be the power of God that's called great. You can't miss that contrast, can you? Simon's called the power of God that's great. And now it's the word of the cross that's the power of God. And Philip comes preaching, simply preaching. Remarkable, isn't it? Preaching the gospel changes hearts. Now this leads us to a, a look at the perils related to the gospel. Now this is a sobering very sobering. Jesus uses this same kind of sobering uh, reminder in John chapter 6. Let me just read this for you. You can turn back there and read later. But you've got these, these masses of people who are following Christ around. And he gives them this hard saying. And it says, when the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there's some of you who do not believe. You're, now listen, you're talking to disciples, people who've been following Jesus Christ. Crowds, massive crowds, they've been following him, and he's saying some of you don't believe. Now I'm going to tell you that it'd be like in many very large churches today and even out on the streets and the golf courses today. If you were to say, you know, you don't believe in Christ, they'd say, oh, yes, I believe. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't. If you believed, you could, you could understand and you'd receive this hard saying of mine that you have to follow me, you have to trust me only. Listen to what it says. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And the force of that in the original is, is much stronger than no longer walked, no longer ever would walk with him again. In other words, it's over. They went back to the golf courses. They went back to their, to their sporting events. They went back to their hobbies, no longer to follow Jesus. Why? Because he told them that he was the only proper object of saving faith. Because he told them that they would have to receive him through faith alone, period. That's the whole point of chapter 6. What is saving faith and who is saving faith to be placed in? Jesus Christ. And so they went away. Now you remember, Peter then pipes up and says, uh, 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 Jesus says, do you too, looking at the immediate disciples, those 12, do you also want to go away? And Peter makes that great claim, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And you'd expect at that point, wouldn't you, that Jesus would say, Amen, good job, Peter, and slap him on the back. But he doesn't. He says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Whoa. They don't know who the devil is amongst them. They don't, know who, they don't know about Judas right now. 
the end's not up. They don't, they don't have a clear vision of this. They're left all to go and do what Paul calls the Corinthians to do. Examine yourself that you be found in the faith. I mean, isn't that what you'd do if Jesus had just left you with that? One of you is a devil. And he didn't, he didn't exempt Peter. One of you is a devil except Peter. That was a good confession of faith, Peter. See, we can make good profession of faith like Simon and be among those that Jesus talks about in Matthew that on that last day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? Didn't we do great, powerful deeds in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. You can't just profess a historical faith, oh, yeah, great, or an emotional response to something. It has to be a genuine faith in a genuine Savior to genuinely save you. Simon, I think James Montgomery Boyce is right when he concludes that we have no evidence here from this passage of Simon's conversion. But simply your basic, flippant profession of faith. How easy it is isn't it, just to say, oh, I believe that. And yet, James says, a faith that doesn't change your life and make you different, what kind of faith is that? And James concludes it's no faith at all. So there's a peril here. We can sit under the preaching of the word week after week after week, and we can nod our heads like Simon and and end up like Simon. Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Repent of your wickedness and if possible, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Do you notice Simon's response? It's not, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner like the publican. Back in Luke 18, it was a, oh, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. It scared him, but he didn't cry out to God like Peter told him to. He cried out to Peter. He cried out to Philip. He cried out to these men instead of to his God. This morning, we ought to all examine ourselves. Is our cry every day to God? Is our cry to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is our faith there in Christ? Is our, is, our, is, our, is our heart full of materialistic leanings as with Simon? Or is it singularly on Christ and him crucified? Faith unto salvation comes through the hearing of the preached word. It necessitates that we examine ourselves that indeed our faith is in what we preach as the gospel and in nothing else. Let's not our, let ourselves be distracted from the main thing. The main thing is preaching Christ and him crucified. Whether it's Stephen talking to people in the daily course of life or it's Philip standing and preaching with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then our response should be to believe that. 
May that be true of our hearts today. Amen. Father, we thank you. Thanks again for listening to this audio sermon from the pulpit of Covenant Presbyterian Church. These sermons are provided for the edification of church members who wish to hear the sermons again, and for those who are providentially hindered from attending our